Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. To Done by Law with Bonnie, Rhea, Ali, and Sarush. It's Tuesday, the 14th of April. This is our first foray into the offsite recording, so apologies in advance for some of the sound quality. Now, today we've got two interviews. The first is with Amanda George. She's speaking with Rhea about some possible potential for social change we might see out of the COVID crisis. And the second interview, we're talking about the impact of the pandemic on the Children's Court and the Child Protection System with Senior Lawyer at Women's Legal Service, Beth Jones. But we'll dive straight into Amanda George. Here's Rhea Jago. And a quick shout out to Heather Jago, her mother, who helped out on the sound check this week. Here's the interview. Hello and welcome to Done By Law. How about this brave new world of getting radio shows together outside of our wonderful 3CR studio? How are you all going? Are you okay? I'm Rhea, and this show was produced by Bonnie and by me. Times like these provide opportunities for seismic change. Economist Milton Friedman is being quoted a fair bit at the moment for saying that only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. The actions that are taken depend on the ideas lying around. So now is the time to ask the big questions to see what change is possible. Let's not tinker with the edges, but let the data and the big ideas speak. Today we welcome onto the show Amanda George, prison activist, lawyer, academic and founder of Flat Out, an all-round legend, to talk about the cruel situation that incarcerated people are in here in Victoria and elsewhere. So let's start with the specifics. Amanda, first welcome to the show and thank you so much for being on. So what are prison advocates such as Liberty Vic and and yourselves uh, calling for at this time? Basically, we're calling for a release of people from prison because what we have got is the potential of a public health disaster more than we're currently facing. Prisons are really like cruise ships, but uh, much, much worse in terms of it being an environment for infections and diseases to run rife. In Australia, there are 43,000 people in prison and 3,500 of them are women. We also have 6,000 prison workers who go in and out of prison every day. So for people who think that, oh well, we can keep the virus inside a prison Mm. like we can a cruise ship, well, it's very different because there are people going in and out all the time. 
and prison walls really are paper thin. I guess what we're actually dealing with on a big level is we have had state and territory governments around Australia who in their lust for law and order elections have created bulging, overcrowded prisons with people who should not be there. And it is the state and territory governments who have created this extraordinary risk in the community. If we look at what has happened in Victoria, just in terms of spending in the last seven years, there has been a 90% increase in spending on the prison industry. There has been a 1% increase in seven years on social and public housing. Wow, so that's we, extraordinary. So we've seen a real desire to uh, create a society which is very fearful and all of a sudden those politics have created a society that is legitimately fearful yeah. of a virus rather than the politics of fear that law and order elections play out on. Yeah, and I guess, sorry. sorry, go on, Amanda. I guess I wanted to pick up on the Milton Friedman comment that you uh, started the show with. Yeah. Just to direct people to a... Um, Something which is on the Flat Out Facebook page, which is the proceedings from a sort of open conference that was held last week, I think it was, in the States. And there's a conversation between Maggie Klein and Angela Davis about really what are the opportunities that this particular crisis gives us. Because it is quite clear that things cannot be the same again. Yeah. And what we need to all do in the community is consider how we can dismantle the structures that have led to a society where we have got a healthcare system that is in crisis, not particularly because of the virus, but because of what investment or lack of investment has gone into the health system, yeah. what lack of investment has gone into housing. So we have all these people saying, uh, what are we going to do if we release people from prison? What are we going to do in terms of housing? Well, yeah. basically, we put people in hotels. We put people in motels. We put people in places where they're going to be safe. And instead of spending the money that goes into maintaining prisons and people in prison at maybe... 110 to 130,000 a year, yeah. we give people support in that housing. So it, it seems like moments like these, um, as Naomi Klein and others have said, like there's a real opportunity for seismic change, isn't there? Um, I've, I've read, you know, some background work that major reforms to social welfare have happened globally in the wake of things of disasters and epidemics like this. Um, so we really do have a unique moment um, to address some of the um, social welfare problems that have been worsening over time in Australia um, now. I've, um, I've, I've heard that while the government is acknowledging that releasing prisoners 
is the best public health response to COVID-19. Um, I don't think it used the following words, but it's clear that Victoria no longer has the public housing infrastructure to deal with this kind of crisis. Now, I heard you say that hotels are an option and actually we can find ways to deal with this, but do you have any sense of optimism that actually this could be a moment where the government understands that it just cannot let uh, public housing stock run down to almost nothing? I do have a sense of optimism. The fact that we have got governments around Australia who are talking about releasing people. They're talking about releasing people who are close to the end of their sentence, which they should do. They are talking about releasing people who have health issues which put them at high risk, in particular Aboriginal people, in particular women, in particular people who are there on short sentences. You know, people who are there on short sentences, women in particular, for three months, four months, five months, they have been in the community until very recently. So we need to get those people out of prison and it will be very clear that that does not have the impacts on public safety mm. around law and order that people are concerned about. Mm. The best society we can have is one where we spend money on supporting people, not on creating the most expensive accommodation with the worst healthcare, which mm. is a prison. Mm. Yeah, I heard a friend of mine said, a friend said she was at a dinner party where she heard uh, that someone was saying, well, you know, if we let people out of prison, you know, then, then you know, there was an instance where someone who had convictions for family violence, criminal offences in relation to family violence, um, actually then committed further family violence as a result. This is a, a concern that we hear in the community. And from what you're saying, actually, that would be, you know, an extreme case that in the main, people will understand that a lot of people in prisons are regular people like you and me, uh, meeting some unfortunate circumstances and unfor unfortunate systemic discrimination. I think that's correct. And, uh, you know, when we're thinking about family violence, this particular health crisis we have at the moment will be leading to enormous levels of family violence. Yeah. And that has is because of the systemic issues of people who are in situations, in homes, where not enough money has been spent on social housing mm. for people who... Uh, we get out of relationships where there's violence. Mm -hmm. Now, if we looked at doing things, which they are in some countries, which is looking at stopping police being involved in the prosecution of low-level offences, mm -hmm. um, I think the uh, Australian Lawyers Alliance has said we should not be prosecuting low-level drug offences, we should not be prosecuting homeless people. We really need to focus police resources on the public health crisis we have at the moment. And putting that into prosecuting low-level offences is a complete waste of time. Yeah. People need to have support on release from prison. There is no doubt about that. Yeah. And that is where our safest society will come from, spending money to support people. We know that when women are released from prison, in the first month of their release, something like 45% of those women experience 
serious violence. Mm. So it's actually in the community where we need to spend the money to provide safety for women and children experiencing violence. It isn't the issue of who we release and who we don't release. It's about what do we provide in the community to keep women and children safe. Yeah. Wow, there's some really powerful words, Amanda. Um, is there are there any final observations that you'd like to make at this time? I think there's there's quite a careful deliberation going on within the government about whether to release. I've heard different things over the last few days. I'm just wondering if you've got any final message for the government at this time. The message is that in Victoria, a third of women are inside for less than one month. A half are in for less than three months. Those women should be released so that they can be home with families, with friends, or in accommodation where they are not going to be at risk like they are in prison. We need to deal with the fact that the coronavirus is a public health crisis, which can only be solved by putting money into the community and putting women and children in the community in a safe space by releasing male prisoners and providing them with support as well. Because what we know is the vast majority of people who are in prison, men and women, have experienced terrible violence in their lives. Mm -hmm. They've often gone through juvenile justice. They've often been in out-of-home care. It has been the systemic discrimination that they have suffered in their life that has been the trajectory into prison. Yeah. Now is the time to spend money to fix a lot of those things up. And we can see that if governments have will, they will find the money. Yeah. And the state government needs to do that, just like the federal government does. Yeah, just just a final thought. I'm, I'm, do you think it's it's too soon to say that the coronavirus is really showing the lie of the tough on crime agenda and how expensive it is and the cost that it brings? I think it is. I think that any Victorian, if they thought about the fact that the money that the government spends on our behalf resulted in a 90% increase in prison spending and a 1% increase in social housing spending mm. can see that that is completely the wrong way around. We need a 90% increase or more in social and public housing spending and a massive reduction in the number of people being sent to prison and in prison. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Amanda, for your time. Really appreciate it. And that was Amanda George from Flat Out talking about the impact of COVID on our most vulnerable. Next, we're going straight to Beth Jones, Senior Lawyer at Women's Legal Service. She is talking in this interview about what's happening in the child protection space during the COVID-19 crisis. Here we go. And thanks for coming on Done By Law, Beth Jones. So um, the first thing I was just going to ask, uh, can you describe how it works at the Children's Court? What does Women's Legal Service do there? 
Legal Service provides both a duty lawyer service and ongoing case management service and support for women who um, come into contact with the child protection system. We primarily operate out of the Moorabbin Children's Court. And what this means is that we are allocated mothers at the first um, court hearing um, and assist them on the day. The hearing um, comes about where the Department of Health and Human Services have assessed that there are some protective concerns or issues in the family home and have made the decision that the children need to be um, removed from that family home. After we assist women on the first day, we usually um, do an intake process where they become ongoing clients, which means that we will support them with all of the hearings at the children's court because there's very rarely one. And we also provide ongoing case management support. We can link them in with our financial counsellors and social workers. We have both those services running in-house. So what sort of decisions are the courts making when you're helping women out? So the court's making a decision about where children are going to live. So are they going to live with a parent, both parents, or are they going to be placed with a different family member, out of home care, foster care or resi care? So the consequences are fairly significant. The other decisions that the courts are making is what do parents need to do to keep their um, children safe? So they'll be making decisions about whether um, parents need to access counselling or psychological services, engage with medical practitioners. They'll be um, looking at conditions about whether parents need to have drug and alcohol support, including providing supervised urine drug screens. So there's a whole range of conditions which are essentially limitless in the children's court. And so it's very important that parents understand what those conditions are, what their obligations are, and the pathways back to having their children um, safely in their care or return to their care if they're not placed with them. And so with COVID, what's, what's been the impact at court? The impact at court has been significant with COVID-19. So all hearings provide an opportunity usually um, for negotiations um, to occur between, uh, between the parties, between lawyers, between represented people, between unrepresented people. Um, and that gives you a face-to-face -face involvement and access to the justice system. Sometimes we need to run full arguments or submissions in the court in order to have a magistrate make a decision where the parties themselves can't come to an agreement. The, um, because of COVID-19, the Children's Court has made a decision to close both the Moorabbin and Broadmeadows courts. So the courts are operating solely out of the Melbourne Children's Court. So in a sense, what one of the consequences has been is that there's a concentration of families in the one place. And that actually makes the court system a little bit more chaotic. There's a lot more people there. It can be a lot more overwhelming. There's also been, um, separately to that, however, there's also a practice direction asking people to not attend court. So there's also a confusion about should I or should I not go to court? Now, where clients are not at court, they're operating over the phone. They're talking to their lawyers who are often also not at court now over the phone. So a whole heap of negotiations and arguments are being run 
literally on mobile phones. There's been, which, which is obviously very difficult. And one of the, the most difficult things that are happening is often that the lawyer, if, if a client has a lawyer, is appearing on a speakerphone of the department lawyer in court. So if you can imagine trying to um, run an argument to a magistrate over the telephone, I think it's fairly obvious how difficult this will be to try and get all of that um, language um, and going through all of the um, different elements and arguments under the legislation within the documents that have been provided on a speakerphone. So what that's actually meaning is a lot more negotiations and agreements have to happen rather than arguments before the magistrate. And this isn't necessarily um, leading to the greatest outcomes for clients. There's also um, a very big, um, uh, another practice direction which is having a very big impact on families and that is um, the adjournment period. So all hearings are being adjourned um, under the same regime. So if you're a parent who has a child in your care, there's an automatic adjournment for 12 weeks. If you're a parent who doesn't have a child in her care, there's an automatic adjournment of 20 weeks. Now the adjourned date is being adjourned to something called a special mention. And no clarification has been provided by the court or the department about what is to occur at those special mentions. We are unsure whether that's an opportunity for negotiation, an opportunity for arguments to be run, or whether, depending on the status of COVID at that time, it will just simply be another adjournment. Now, one of the big concerns with that is that the children, particularly where children are not in a parent's care, there's some impacts about supervised contact, seeing your children, engaging with the services and complying with court orders. Likewise, if you have children in your care, you may or may not be able to comply with the court conditions and engage with services, provide drug screens, etc., cetera, um, under the sort of COVID shutdown period. So, there's a question mark about what will be a breach. Will the department be removing children if parents who have their kids can't comply with court orders? And what's the long-term impact for parents who have no contact for their, with their children for up to three, four, five, six months? There was an article in The Age talked about people not being able to have contact with their children. Is that what you're seeing? Yes. So basically what we understand, and I'll note that there's been no distribution of this policy to any um, of the groups that work within the children's courts, so any of the service providers, any of the private practitioners, lawyers or court staff. But we understand that there was an emergency directive by the Department of Health and Human Services that all supervised contact was to be suspended where it was supervised by the department. We also understand that all supervised contact where it was to be supervised by other family members was to be suspended. That the transference of children between houses, if they were sort of living with different people or able to have overnight time with other parents, was to be suspended. We also understand there was a Supreme Court case, appeal case last week, that did to some extent overturn the part of that direction where it is family members who are supervising the contact. So we understand that from the court's point of view, a family member, if they if they consent under 
coronavirus risks can supervise contact between a parent and child if they have that child in their care. So if you're a grandparent who has the child placed in your care and you consent despite the risks of coronavirus to supervising contact, we understand that it's the court's view that that contact should be occurring. However, some reports from our clients have been that the contact's still not happening. The communication with the department workers is um, very low. We have had clients um, not be notified that their contact isn't occurring, attending at the department office and seeing a note on the door and then contacting us to let uh, to inquire as to what is happening. And um, in many cases, we haven't been able to get answers from the department workers. In one particularly awful case, we had a mother who breastfeeds her, her infant child every day, attend for contact at one of the department offices and simply be met with a note on the door. Um, the, the impact of not seeing your child for an, an indefinite period isn't just about the parents and the impact on the parents and how distressing that will be um, and how confusing it is for parents that there's a court order saying they can have contact and all of a sudden they can't. But also it's not good for children. It's not in the best interest of children um, to not have contact with their parents, particularly in situations where the, the plan for, from the department is reunification. So if the plan is to eventually or at some point in time bring these children back home to a parent, yet under COVID they don't see their parent for six months or more, um, that is obviously not in the best interest of the children. The department are also offering things like face-to-face -face or phone contact. And I understand in some families they're buying mobile phones and credit to help assist this. But I've had a number of clients with children under the age of five and two with babies um, under the age of 12 months where phone contact or video contact is being often offered and obviously that this is not meaningful contact this is not real contact you can't have um, a, a FaceTime conversation with a seven-month-old baby so they aren't it appears at this stage they haven't really thought through how to manage that for, for parents and it's incredible according causing an incredible amount of stress and anxiety and of course we don't have that core oversight so if you've had a matter that's um, being adjourned for 12 weeks or 20 weeks. It is some months before you can bring this before an independent person to have that to have that reviewed. We understand that we're not in a position to bring applications for new interim accommodation orders or variations of interim accommodation orders. So we are completely reliant on the department to manage um, manage these families well. And there's obviously a lot of concerns about that at the moment. And it, this impacts the client group that women's legal service work with in particular. So we work with a lot of very vulnerable women. So women um, experiencing family violence, women who use interpreters, women who have disabilities, women who have substance issues and significant mental health issues. And these issues are being significantly exacerbated by some of these decisions. Communicating, you know, communicating with these clients in the court context that I was referring to earlier is, is difficult at the best of times when we're face to face. But communicating with vulnerable clients over the phone and trying to explain the complexities of what is happening um, at court on that day with these huge decisions about their children is, is it, it, look, it's very hard work and it's near impossible and the outcomes are, 
uh, are not great, um, to be frank. Um, but also supporting these women to address the protective concerns where they may or may not have access to proper technology to engage with a counsellor, for example, or in the case of family violence, they may live in the home with a perpetrator of family violence. So supporting that that mother to have a safe and private space that she can continue to work towards having her children back in her care, again, is near impossible or, you know, at the very least, very difficult um, and unsafe. Yeah, that, it just sounds like the most vulnerable are the ones who are going to suffer the most during this crisis. Thank yes. you so much, Beth, for taking us through that. I really appreciate your time and good luck with it. Thank you, Bonnie. Bye. Thank you. Finished the interview, Beth told me that she was particularly concerned in a case where one of her clients had been asked to catch public transport taking their children to do their supervised urine screens given that we are really trying to minimise movements, whether that was absolutely necessary uh, at this time. And to end this week's show, I'm just going to share two new resources available online, covidpolicing.org.au. Plenty of resources for anyone who might have been approached by police uh, not about observing the shutdown laws. And covid19prisonwatch.net.au, how the crisis is impacting those inside. Thank you and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.